Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're talking about something extremely important in the plant world, the evolution and development of fruits. Of course, many of us enjoy the taste of fruits every now and then, or hopefully incorporate them into at least portions of your diet, but the question becomes, how did they evolve? I think in many ways, we take fruits for granted as something that's always been, but that's not the case. And it's really interesting to try to understand how that process got underway and how it's changed over time. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Cecilia Zumajo, who uses molecular techniques to try to understand all of the processes involved in fruit development and evolution. Now, a lot of her work focuses, of course, on angiosperms, specifically the model plant Arabidopsis, which is a mustard. But it may surprise you how important gymnosperms become in trying to understand this process as well. By looking at different groups of gymnosperms, such as the ewes, the ginkgos, the needums, that produce fruit-like structures, Dr. Zamaho and her colleagues are trying to understand how different genes work to go on to produce fruit-like structures and whether they're conserved between gymnosperms and angiosperms. Her work is absolutely fascinating, and she is such a great science communicator, so I don't want to keep you from this conversation much longer. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Zamaho. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Cecilia Zamajo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about your work today. But first, let's tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me. I am a big fan oh. of In Defense of Plants, so it's an honor to be here. Oh, wonderful. Yes, thank you. And well, I am Cecilia Zumajo. I grew up in Colombia in a neotropical country, so I was since the beginning, since I was a child, I was immersed in this amazing, diverse space. So I was always looking at plants. And I was just thinking recently that uh, my mom and I, when I was a child, my mom is in political sciences, but she was always very sensitive uh, towards nature and plants and we used to go out collecting seeds oh. all the time. So we had Nearby my city, there was a, a forest, a pine tree forest. Huh. And we used to go there just for a day in the woods and uh, collecting seed cones. <laughs> so I think that was like the first time that I really got into seeds. And I never thought that was going to be my my job. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. And then, well, I was always, I think for me, mentors and uh, having people around me, they have influenced me a lot. So I got into college, I went, I did biology. And in Colombia, undergrads are a five year program. Oh. So since the very beginning, I was uh, in the botany journal club, we were uh, reading papers every week on wow. taxonomy, systematics. And there was one day that the university hired a new professor. Her name is Natalia Pavon Mora. And she gave a talk on what she did for her PhD, which is development, flower development in the Papaveraceae family, so mm. uh, the poppy family. And I remember everything about that day, <laughs> uh, the stage, the hair slides, how she was dressed, almost everything, because... I thought this is what I want to work on when wow. I do my PhD. Wow. And I never thought I was going to be able to do it for my undergrad. So then she was looking for an undergrad student to work on a project on also on uh, flower <laughs> development in poppies. <laughs> and yes. 
So I was like, I can I work with you? And she was, I was only in my second year. So I really didn't know much about developmental biology or huh. I didn't know anything about developmental <laughs> biology or evolution or anything. But she explained everything. I took the class then and we started started working so the project was characterizing the function of a gene mm. in a, the californian poppy oh california and it turns out that we grew the plants in our lab but they were really happy they were really green and healthy but they never transitioned to flower and we were looking at a gene that is involved in flower development hmm. so we definitely couldn't do a project <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but and in Colombia, also in the undergrad, you have to do a thesis project. Mm. So we had to switch to another project. And uh, we started working on the Aperola 2 gene family. So this is probably a good point to introduce this. The gene names and gene and nomenclature is not as well defined as the binomial nomenclature <laughs> for species. Yeah. This is a complete mess. <laughs> <laughs> but what scientists usually do is that uh, you define the gene and you name the gene after the mutant phenotype. Oh. So you silence the gene in the plant. You see what happens when the, with, with the plant when that gene is not present. And that is the name that the gene gets. So a petal 2 is a gene that is involved in petal development okay. because the mutant doesn't have petals. They usually they are usually like that. Nice <laughs> gene name. Good to know. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so we were working on a parallel to the evolution of this gene lineage, and we did a little bit of expression across seed plants. And it turns out that a parallel to is not only involved in flower and petal development, but also involved in different developmental processes. So in fruit development, seed development in the plant. Wow. So that's where my undergrad ended, yes. And oh, wow. I came here to the States <laughs> with all of that in my mind. And I had a, a Pella 2 as a now like more a fruit developmental gene mm. in my mind. So I was really interested in fruit development now and how like the entire genetic network works that gives rise to the diverse forms of fruits that we see. And uh, yes, that's when I moved to the United States to do my PhD with a joint program between the New York Botanical Garden and the City University of New York. Nice. And uh, long story short, <laughs> I was I was studying a fruit development, and I thought I was going to work on fruits, but then. In here, we have gymnosperms hmm. that for me in Colombia, they were never really striking. We don't have many native gymnosperms. Mm -hmm. And what we have are these pine forests that are uh, cultivated for wood. So I, I really didn't like them that much. <laughs> But here, that's all what you see green in the winter. The only green thing you see is a gymnosperm. So for me, that was like a good transition. And was some, it was really nice to see something green in the middle right. of the winter. I started really appreciating gymnosperms. <laughs> it takes that harsh struggle of winter to bring out the love. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I started looking at the gymnosperms at the botanical garden, mm. and there are many uh, ginkgo biloba trees, and there are many also taxus baccata, the yew tree. And these species have these fleshy seeds. So the ginkgo seed, actually many people describe it as a fruit because it looks like a fruit. It gets fleshy, it ripens, everything. And the same thing happens with the yew tree. The yew tree has this fleshy aerial covering that seed that becomes red and it allows seed dispersion by animals. So gymnosperms are known to have a naked seeds so 
It's because they are not covered by a carpal. They don't have flowers. They don't have a carpal and a fruit to disperse the seeds. But one way or another, gymnosperms are finding the way to get that seed dispersed. And that's when I started like, okay, this is not a fruit. This is a seed. I want to study seed development in gymnosperms because we know very little about gymnosperm development in general and the genetics behind a gymnosperm development. So I started digging into seeds and into gymnosperms. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's, that's an amazing trajectory. And it's really cool to see that transition of like, this is what's really kind of interesting to me right now. And then coming to a new area with new plants, new experiences with them, and kind of putting the pieces together based on your interests, but also new questions that you were developing. That's such a cool observational component. And it just, you know, I, I probably sound like a broken record on this podcast, but get outside, look around you. You never know what kind of these, these curiosities are going to spring up in your life. And and for you, it's turned into an entire and very incredible research career. So yeah, fruit development is its own thing because, you know, fruit is ubiquitous. We eat it. We love it. Uh, You know, many of us love it. But yeah, the transition into thinking about what came sort of before fruits, right? It's not trying to say that like ginkgos and taxis are the progenitors of fruit, but they've done very similar things for very similar purposes. So it makes sense that you would want to start looking at what was going on in the developmental stage. And that that seems both challenging, but also very exciting at the same time for, for someone such as yourself. Yes, it was very exciting and of course very difficult to just to formulate the question how does this make sense you know so you know i started thinking about fruits but i didn't want to do the comparison of fruit genes in gymnosperms yeah so we know very little about gymnosperm development so anything you do in gymnosperms is going to be new and it's going to be surprising so uh, i had in my mind a fruit development, but I really want to take a a good approach to this question. And uh, I started looking like, okay, I'm going to compare homologous structures. So it makes more sense if I study and if I start by understanding the structure itself. So I decided to focus only on the seed and how does the state in gymnosperms develop? Mm. So in genetic studies, usually in any area, we have model organisms. So these are species that scientists have used and developed so that they can characterize the different genetic processes. So in animals, mice is a (laughs) really good example. But in plants, we used the mole species is Arabidopsis thaliana, which belongs to the Brassicaceae family, the mustard family. And we know many things about this plant. We know (laughs) the genes involved in seed development are really well characterized in these species. But we don't know that much in any other species. So (laughs) I started by looking and learning about seed development in Arabidopsis and, okay, how does this correlate? Can we extrapolate what we know from the monster family to like gymnosperms, this really big fleshy seed? And that was the the starting point. We first have to know if those genes are even present in gymnosperms if they have the same function, if uh, they are expressed in the same way. Because you also, with gymnosperms, and that's why there are so uh, few studies on gymnosperms, because you have the limitation that gymnosperms are big trees, have very long life cycles. So you cannot do many studies. You cannot do functional studies. What I was telling you before about moving the gene from the plant and see what happens, you cannot do that in a tree. So those are the limitations we had, but there are also other ways to overcome that and to start generating data and information on these species. It's really wild when you put it in that context, because I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, Gymnosperm is really maybe not getting the attention that flowering plants are, but it even sounds like from sort of the gene and scientific perspective that plants are always getting the short shrift in terms of like, we're looking at animals, we're looking at insects, we're looking at a lot of invertebrates, but plants, you know, Arabidopsis, that's the one most people will be familiar with, but 
to think about, you know, starting out a PhD, having these questions in your head and going, okay, how do I compare this tiny mustard and that you can grow in a lab to, like you said, trees growing outside? That had to be pretty daunting to even start asking questions and, and trying to tease apart what you need to do to start investigating this stuff, I'm guessing. Yes, yes. Yes, it was also exciting, a little scary, of course, because this was my PhD project. Right. So I needed it to like work, <laughs> but still it is always exciting. And uh, that happens all the time in science, I think, when you start researching a new area or asking new questions, there is always that excitement. And where is this going to take me? And I had no idea. I couldn't make a really good hypothesis on like where I was going to find these genes expressed in uh, gymnosperms because the morphology of the seeds is so different and they are so distantly related that I cannot, I couldn't really make a solid hypothesis. Okay, I'm going to find the exact same expression patterns in these seeds. I'm going to see exactly the same, the genetic network should be conserved. No, you, you don't know that before. And so you're always finding new things and every experiment is a surprise. <laughs> yeah, but it's really cool to hear the passion in your voice for this curiosity and for the work itself, because this is not for the faint of heart, especially when your PhD work depends on the data that you're trying to generate. So well done. Uh, but, you know, at the risk of sounding corny, uh, which I'm just going to power through anyway. You know, people say it's like comparing apples and oranges, which to me, that's way closer than what you were doing comparing a rabbit opsis and say ginkgo. That's 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 <laughs> whoo. But OK, before we jump into sort of the meat of what you were studying, you know, you mentioned the challenges in trying to bring gymnosperms into the picture because they are large. You can't culture them in mass quantities in a lab and have a lot of space available for them. So where did you even begin trying to get access to, say, physical material to even start asking these questions with general sperms. I mean, that in and of itself sounds like a real research logistical challenge. Yes. So this project was structured and it has different areas. So we decided to look at different species of gymnosperms. At the end, we had five different gymnosperms that have different uh, seed morphologies. So we included a ginkgo, that the seed becomes fleshy. We included the yew tree, a taxus baccata, which has an aril that becomes fleshy. And then uh, we also included from Natalis, we included ephedras. So ephedras are amazing because they have these bracts covering the seed. And in some species, the bracts become fleshy. And in other species, the bracts remain dry throughout the seed development. So hmm. some of them become winged and others are just like dry bracts surrounding the seed. So that was a good comparison. And from my perspective, that was, okay, this is a natural mutant, we could call it, because we have bracts that become fleshy and others that do not become fleshy. And uh, we were at the end, we were also able to include Nidum, Nimon, which also has this fleshy structure and is also very curious. It's also a Nitalis. And it has additional envelopes covering the seed and the outer envelope uh, becomes fleshy. So we selected this species because ginkgo and the yew tree, they were growing at the botanical garden by the laboratory. So I was able to really track down this species, collect almost <laughs> every day for five years. <laughs> uh, Needham was also, uh, I wasn't expecting this because Needham grows in tropical forests. But at the botanical garden in the greenhouses, they also have a plant, which I knew they had, but I never thought it would transition to a reproductive stage. Nice. But it did yes. during my PhD. And I actually doing it like every year and I'm <laughs> still amazed. <laughs> so I was able to go and collect. <laughs> yes. That's fantastic. I know. I know. Yes. It was amazing to have all of the species almost there. And then I was so intrigued by ephedra that I had to go to California and oh. Texas and collect those. Well, geez. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. And then the project also has a different component, like different methodologies that we had to use. So first we took the gene candidate approach, which is 
looking at what we know from Arabidopsis and seeing what happens in gymnosperms with those genes. And the other one is a transcriptomic approach. So we started sequencing the transcriptomes of the different tissues of a ginkgo, tarsus, and the two ephedra species. And we dissected the different tissues of the seed and the plant, and we sequenced those for transcriptome. So the transcriptome is a good starting point when you want to do gene expression analysis. So those are those were our approaches to, to this question and the challenges that gymnosperms represent. That's really cool. And yeah, I mean, best place to be if you're kind of doing this is a botanical garden, an area with some landscaping, but also doing some field work too. I mean, you kind of combined all the great things about studying plants right into one. But what's also cool is it seems like there is both, you know, a heavy, heavy molecular focus here, trying to understand transcriptomes, gene sequencing, that sort of stuff. But also, like you said, comparing homologous structures, you're looking at the structure of this sort of like classic botany work, slicing things up, looking at what's going on and how it's changing over time. And I think that's just a beautiful combination of, of approaches because, you know, we, we kind of get stuck in the modern era of being like, no, nah, it's all DNA. But no, sometimes it's going back to basics and just looking at what's going on. Exactly, you're totally right, because we have we need morphology and anatomy, and we need to understand those structures and how they're developed in their morphology first, and try to combine those two things. And we're going to talk later probably about this, because that has been one of our challenges, trying to combine what we know from the molecular data with our understanding of these structures in terms of the morphology which is also really complex. So I was also, again, I was really lucky to have different mentors. So my advisor, uh, Barbara Ambrose, works uh, in molecular bio biology in Evo Devo. But I also had Dennis Stevenson, who is a really strong morphologist and anatomist. So I was supported from like both sides, I, I think. And uh, that made this project possible, I think. Yeah. And I mean, talk about developing really cool, distinct skill sets that can be used in tandem with each other. But, you know, this whole time, you're still kind of comparing things to this background of Arabidopsis. So even from just the starting point, when you were getting data together and starting to look at these things, where you kind of, I would imagine there's a lot of head scratching going like, what? How are we doing this? What are, why are we approaching this? Because again, as you mentioned, not a lot of this stuff has been investigated before. It's a, a lot of it's completely new territory. So as someone that's kind of on the ground doing this work for the first time, how do you start comparing? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's difficult also because I had a background from angiosperms. So I came from working with fruits, remember that. So I knew angiosperms relatively well, but then you have to start thinking about gymnosperms. And there are many structures that are not present in, in gymnosperms. There are many differences in the morphology of these structures. And it's, it's really difficult for, it was difficult for me with an angiosperm background to start like taking those biases from my mind and start looking at gymnosperms. I think that for a paleontologist, <laughs> the formation that paleontologists have is completely different. They go from the uh, basics from ferns <laughs> and gymnosperms, and then they move to our to angiosperms. We, I did it the other way and we usually do it the other way. So it, that's, a more difficult path, I think. <laughs> but it was it was definitely difficult because the structures in angiosperms are different and there are genes specific to each structure. So the seed comes from the ovule. Okay. So the seed is the fertilized ovule. Mm -hmm. So I focused, I started looking at the early developmental stages. So I worked uh, with ovules and the seed code. So the Okay, so the seed is formed by three different structures. We have the embryo, the nutritive tissue, which is going to nourish that embryo, and a protective layer, which is the seed coat. But because the seed is a, the fertilized ovule, we have like the same structures in an ovule at a younger stage. Mm. So in the ovule, you have the nucellus or the megagametophyte, covered, protected by the integuments, which then are going to form the seed coat when, when the seed 
it's formed. And so in Arabidopsis, there are two integuments. There are two structures covering that nucellus. In gymnosperms, in most gymnosperms, there is only one, right? Mm -hmm. So, and again, in most angiosperms, there are two integuments, not all of them, but most of them have two integuments. So, and Arabidopsis has two integuments. So we knew genes specific to the outer integument, specific to the inner integument, genes that are involved in the separation of both integuments. And then what's going on with gymnosperms? There is only one integument in ginkgo. How do I look at these genes? I, that's why I was telling you, I didn't know what to expect <laughs> when I started this, because we started looking at these genes and it's a gene that is in the outer integument. So which one is the integument that I have in a gymnosperm? Is it the outer or the inner integument? So those are like a little philosophical questions, but that <laughs> took me through my entire PhD and I'm still asking those things. <laughs> well, hey, that's what that PH stands for. Right? <laughs> No, that's amazing, though. And again, thinking about homologous structures and going back to basics, you really are going back in time and sort of the evolutionary developmental history of these things. Again, not in inferring that these are direct ancestors, but you're looking at different stages sort of in the development of these structures. And so it's really actually an amazing question to think about, okay, here we have two, here's one. Which one do they correspond to if they even correspond to one another, which is another option, right? This could be completely de novo stuff that's just... This is what evolution does. It's not hierarchical. Exactly, exactly. And now that you mentioned going back in time, I felt like it was going back in time, seriously, because the ginkgo, I, I love ginkgo. Same. <laughs> so ginkgo is known as a living fossil. And it's because it hasn't changed much since it first evolved around 300 million years ago. And so its morphology has remained very similar. So that's a good way to go back in time a little bit because, I mean, there must be changes that Ginkgo was able to survive through over 300 million years. But we cannot do these molecular analysis in fossil images, which is it's a it's really sad and it's a downside, right? <laughs> because sucks. we would love to be able to, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we would love to be able to look at these species and their structures and the genes that are, were involved in the development of those structures uh, in the fossil record. But uh, ginkgo is a good link because it's a living fossil. So now we can look at the genes that were involved in or that are involved in ginkgo development and that can take us a little bit back in time. That's so cool. And yeah, thankfully, you know, for the monks in China that kept ginkgo going, it could have been truly just a fossil if it wasn't for humans kind of keeping that going. But yeah, having that available and being able to know, you know, roughly speaking in the fossil record where this has been, oh, it's like I get goosebumps. I can't help it. It's just such a cool sort of window into early plant development. But so this integument structure it's present, but there's obviously differences in the number when you go up to angiosperms. So as you start going back, you know, even before gymnosperms, you know, it wasn't always seeds, right? And so thinking about the development, you probably have to put this in the context of where that integument tissue even came from. And without going, you know, too far into the weeds, you, you, <laughs> you have to start thinking about where the structure even comes from in the first place, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And every time I talk about the project, someone asks about ferns. <laughs> and I think that's a really good question and a really valid question because ferns don't have seeds, they have spores. But how was the transition from a, a species that doesn't have seeds to a species that has seeds? And that's when the integument again comes to play and it's a, an important novelty in seed development. So we don't know how the integument evolved. And there are actually several hypotheses that could explain how this happened. So one is that the integument arose or evolved as a new structure. So this is the, the novel hypothesis for uh, integument development. And again, because the integument is covered in the nocellus, this hypothesis also explains seed development. So mm -hmm. The seed may have evolved as a new structure with the integument arising as a new structure. 
Another hypothesis is the telom origin hypothesis, which is based on fossil record. So the, in the fossils we have, in fossil record, we find these megasporangia that are covered or are surrounded by telomes. And in the different lineages of fossils, we see different degrees of fusion of those telomes. So it's possible that those telomes uh, gave rise uh, to the integument the, by fusion of those telomes, right? And there is a third hypothesis, uh, which is the synangial origin hypothesis, which is based on uh, what we know from living lineages of ferns, like members of the Marachielis. Mm. And uh, it says that it's possible that the integuments are the result of sterilization of sporangia around a single fertile sporangium. And those sporangia in the periphery became sterile and they started to fuse forming the integument. So those are the three main hypotheses uh, right now. So we don't know how the integument evolved, but we have some ideas. And also the fossil record that I was explaining that supports the telom origin hypothesis, we could also combine a little bit the telom origin hypothesis with the synangial hypothesis, because the telomes in the fossil record by anatomical descriptions, it has been suggested that they could have been fertile at some point. So in some ways, also the synangial hypothesis, and this is now known as the neo-synangial hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> now we have, so we have these hypotheses. We don't know how this happened exactly, but there are these, these uh, theories on how this could have happened, how uh, we got from uh, not having seeds to having seeds. Wow. And that in and of itself is a fascinating world to look at because it is such an important step in the evolutionary history of plants. Because I'm guessing, you know, this integument, it does a lot of things to allow plants to succeed in places where they probably couldn't before. And even before you get to these questions that you're trying to answer with your PhD, it's, it's, this is such an important structure, this, this integument. <laughs> Yes, and that's why we, we decided to focus specifically in the integument. So we know now that there are these three structures that form the seed. So we uh, we decided to focus only on the integument, which is going to be the seed code, because it protects the embryo. It ensures a tolerance to desiccation. It allows the plant to remain, the embryo to remain vital for really long periods of time under really harsh conditions. And the plant is only going to germinate when the environmental conditions are, are good. And everything is given by the integument. The integument is the one in direct contact with the environment and it's protecting what is happening inside that structure, but also it's in a constant communication with the environment at the end. Wow. Three cheers for the integument. But <laughs> in the context of your work, you know, okay, we have these two pronged approaches looking at sort of like the actual physical development of these structures in the gymnosperm lineages that you chose, but also comparing them to what's going on in Arabidopsis, but then looking at sort of the genes and what's going on molecularly in this developmental process. So let's get into that. I mean, how did you start doing these comparisons and trying to understand and and it, even within the the gymnosperms you looked at i mean they're more closely related than they are to arabidopsis but even you know outside of the nitales they're different lineages as well so were there different things going on and and how did you try to start investigating that yeah so we the first thing to do was to know if these genes that we knew from Arabidopsis were even present in gymnosperms. Mm. So we had to go and look in different uh, transcriptome and genome databases available. Of course, I started by taking the Arabidopsis sequence and putting it into the database and finding whatever was similar to the sequence and downloading all of those sequences. And uh, we built a evolutionary tree, so the maximum likelihood analysis, to know if these genes were present in gymnosperms 
and how they were evolving. So genes evolve in a different way. They're not all, they don't always go in the same, evolve in the same way that species evolve. So uh, there are many duplication events and uh, there are many different things that can happen in the evolutionary history of a gene lineage. So we started by uh, explaining that that was like our starting point. Okay, are these genes present in gymnosperms and what is going on with them? So we found these genes in gymnosperms, but we found also multiple duplication events in each of these gene lineages that we looked at. We looked at around six uh, different gene lineages and we saw that they all have a different evolutionary history. They all have undergone independent duplication events and in gymnosperms, it turns out that there are multiple copies of these genes in, in general terms. All of these genes are duplicated in gymnosperms. So there we had our first uh, like a reality check because we really couldn't. Uh, like before we used to say like, oh, we cannot make hypotheses based on what we know from Arabidopsis. But now it was real because there are so many copies in, in gymnosperms that we didn't know what they all were doing <laughs> in the seed. So then we started looking at the expression patterns of these genes in ginkgo and needle because these were the species that we were able to collect throughout development, mm. different developmental stages. And we were able to perform uh, this expression analysis. So we started looking at how, where and when are these genes expressed in these species. So we started looking and characterizing the expression patterns of these genes in these two gymnosperms. And we saw that they had a very different and not at all similar uh, expression pattern to what we knew from Arabidopsis. Most of these genes in Arabidopsis were found strongly expressed in the integuments of Arabidopsis. And we weren't finding that. We didn't see expression in the integuments. We saw expression in the megasporomolar cells, something really specific, or in the nocellus, or uh, in the abscission zone, actually in ginkgo, when the seed falls of the tree, it breaks through these uh, cell layers that form the abscission zone. And we were seeing expression in those uh, layers. So we didn't see really expression in the integuments. Only few of these genes were expressed in mm -hmm. the integument. And uh, the expression wasn't at all similar to what we knew from Arabidopsis. So there are definitely changes in this genetic network uh, throughout seed plants. It's most likely not conserved. And uh, yeah, there are different expression patterns. So that was a, a, the gene candidate approach. So we <laughs> now we were saying like, okay, these genes are not involved in integument development, most likely. Although I have to say here that we're trying to put together a really big puzzle. And this is what I was mentioning before, that we're trying to combine what we know from the molecular studies with our understanding of the morphology of these species. And it is possible that we're also still trying to grasp the morphology and anatomy of these uh, <laughs> seeds and, and, and these structures. In, uh, it turns out that, for example, uh, ginkgo. Ginkgo has a one integument, but the integument is completely fused to the nocellus and it only becomes free from, from the nocellus and in the apical portion of the, of the ovule, which oh. is going to form the, the micropile, the opening that allows the pollen to enter. And the integument and the nocellus, there is this region where you cannot really differentiate these tissues. And we see differences in the expression patterns of these genes in that region. So it is likely that these changes in the expression patterns that we're seeing for this genetic network is due to major morphological changes in these structures. They are so different that that's why we're seeing different expression patterns in them. So yes, that was our first approach. So now we really, we saw that the starting with Arabidopsis, it's really difficult and we were limited and we're a little bit biased from what we knew from Arabidopsis. So we started doing this transcriptome sequencing. We started to sequence the transcriptomes uh, of the different tissues in this species. 
to try to identify novel genes that we were missing from Arabidopsis, genes that haven't been characterized as having a integument and seed code developmental functions. So that was our next step, the transcriptome analysis. Wow. And I mean, again, I am so not familiar with this stuff in terms of the processes involved. So it sounds like, I mean, a a lot of work and I'm sure it definitely was. But what floors me here is that you're looking at very distinct lineages of plants, especially across angiosperm versus gymnosperm. But you were finding the same genes. And this is what blows my mind is that oftentimes it seems like through evolution, it's not this process of complete new inventions of genes, new genes arising. It's sort of a retooling of systems that have already been in place. It's just, as you mentioned, even within the gymnosperms, applied in very different ways, often duplicated. And and those duplications alone are pretty wild, just considering, you know, it's a very foreign world to vertebrate animals that can't handle that sort of stuff. So, I mean, just these discoveries alone are are just absolutely remarkable. Yes, and we had this duplication specific to different lineages in gymnosperm sometimes. So for in many cases, we had duplicates for nidum. So we had to look at the two different expression patterns of the two different sequences in nidum, which show different expression patterns. And then there was only one copy of this gene in ginkgo. So Again, even within gymnosperms, the number of copies varies and there are different expression patterns. When the gene duplicates, many things can happen. They can have exact same expression patterns or they can have different uh, functions and then again, different expression patterns. So that's what we were saying. For many of these genes, we had duplicates in one species, but not in the other. So the story gets even more and more complicated every time. (laughs) Darn it. Uh, no, but that's also cool because it's, a, it's an, again, another reminder that evolution isn't this hierarchical directed process. It's not going, we're going to get more complex over time and lead to, ta-da, angiosperms. It's whatever works for that lineage is. And the ones that worked, reproduced. And the ones that didn't, excised from the population. And it's a total crapshoot, essentially, as to how that process plays out from lineage to lineage to lineage. And it's so cool to see that repeated time and time again. Yes, yes, exactly. You're right. <laughs> really cool. It was really cool to be seeing that, like, as we were getting results. It was like, oh my God, what is this gene doing here? And we're, <laughs> it was always a surprise. We we're always amazed. Yes, we we're like going back and forth. My advisor and I were like, can you, what does this mean? Why is this gene present, uh, expressed here? And we we're like, text each other like oh i just thought about this like maybe we're looking at the structure in a different way we should we're like looking at it from an arabidopsis perspective we should start looking reading all literature or descriptions of gymnosperms and uh, the morphology and uh, we were like oh i discovered this person described the region where the integuments and the nocellus are completely fused. There is a term for that region, which is the pachychalaza. So that made more sense for us, like knowing that also we weren't alone in this. <laughs> like more people had like already looked at this from a different perspective. So that kind of like corroborated our analysis. And uh, yes, that our results weren't like too crazy because we also had that experience too when we started we were like maybe we're doing the experiment wrong and we did it multiple and multiple times because we didn't it's so difficult to put your mind and your head around this when you were you we weren't expecting these results so we did experiment multiple multiple times for each of these genes because we had to make sure that what we were seeing was the the correct thing it wasn't something methodological, you know, like thing mm. was happening with the experiment. So we really did a thorough analysis and a thorough vision of, of what was happening in with these genes in, in gymnosperms, which turns out not to be the same as they are doing in, in, in angiosperms in general. So that was really exciting. <laughs> Thank you so much for kind of 
pulling back the curtain a little bit on the scientific process because you know here we are you, you're you're an accomplished scientist you've made some amazing discoveries and you you speak about it so eloquently and confidently but it's it's not always the case that you know you see it on TV the the data is coming out of the computer and you're going Eureka we've figured it out no it's a lot of self doubt it's a lot of self checking and oftentimes repeating things and and especially because you know you're kind of on the pr- forefront of some really interesting and novel questions and investigations that you know, there's no like standard for what kind of results you're going to get. You had no expectations, I'm sure. Or at least like you said, there's biases that are coloring some of these uh, expectations. So yeah, to, to hear about sort of the uncertainty is almost refreshing because, you know, it humanizes the process. You're constantly checking yourself. You're constantly, you know, feedback between each other and doubt and resampling. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting insight to hear about someone that's doing really novel and interesting work. Yeah, and I think as scientists, we definitely need to do that. We need to talk about what we're finding and uh, discuss it with other people. And there are always questions that are going to help us uh, look our data set different and uh, question ourselves. We definitely need to do this. And I'm sure every scientist does it because we definitely need to like check on us and like really uh, make sure that what you're finding makes sense and the way you're analyzing the data makes sense. So I think this is this is like an intrinsic <laughs> behavior in scientists at the end. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, when I think of like the hours of conversations, you know, like you said, on the phone or with my advisor in her lab, just back and forth, like, what does this mean? We have to rethink about this. Oh, this is a new thing. It's 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 good to hear that because, yeah, to think that it's all this clean cut. Yep. yep we set out to do this. We found it. Boom. The paper writes itself. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So. The transcriptome part of this, uh, you know, okay, you found some really interesting stuff, genes doing weird things uh, in different species. And and so what what does the transcriptome part of this add to this question? What does it do to allow you to go further with these questions and some of these discoveries you had already just made? So we wanted to know if we could have a better understanding and maybe identify find novel genes that may be involved in integument development in gymnosperms that we may be missing from our angiosperm approach, you know? So we started sequencing the different tissues of uh, these species so that we could compare them. So for instance, in ginkgo, we dissected out the integuments, the megagametophyte, the leaves, the pollen cones, and we sequenced everything separate. And again, with taxus, we did the same thing. We sequenced the areoles separate from the ovule and the leaves and the cones. In ephedra, we did the exact same thing. The bracts separate from the ovules and uh, the leaves and the pollen cones. So we could compare which genes are expressed in the different tissues and identified genes that are differentially expressed in the structure of interest for us, which in every case was at the end a different structure. These are all different species and the structure forming the seed code is is going to be something different. So in Ginkgo, we were looking at the integument in taxus, we focus our study in the areole. And in ephedras, we looked at the bracts that I mentioned before. Some of them uh, become fleshy. So we included one a species with fleshy bracts. And we included a, a species with dry bracts, which is ephedra californica. So we performed this transcriptome analysis. We sequenced uh, the transcriptomes in these different tissues, in these species. And it turns out that we found that the uh, genes that are expressed in these different seed codes are, again, different. So even within gymnosperms, the overall genetic network and the differential expressed genes are different. There were not many similarities in in the genes that were expressed between these species. And we were able to identify some genes that we had no idea could be involved in uh, integument development. So for instance, in Ginkgo, we identified this uh, gene family 
we, we identified many different transcription factors that were upregulated, so they uh, are highly expressing the integument, for which we had never heard about being involved in integument development. Some of these gene families are very, very well-known gene families. Mm. For instance, we got the Iperola 2 gene family again. Oh, no. And... <laughs> Yes, but we don't know what a pedal or two is doing in the integument in gymnosperm. And this happens with many different uh, gene families. We found many large gene families, like members of the Matzbox transcription factors, which is also a very well-known gene family. And we identified this family known as Fantastic Four, which is a, a new, relatively new gene family. It has been uh, recently described, but is known to be involved in a shoot apical uh, meristem development in Arabidopsis again. <laughs> so we, in Arabidopsis, it hasn't been identified in seed development, in integument development, but we found the gene that is highly expressed from the transcriptomes, a, a homologous gene of a fantastic four, and we did the expression pattern, and it turns out that is specifically expressed and strongly expressed in the integument in ginkgo. We didn't find the expression of this gene anywhere else, not in the pollen cone, not in the leaf, only in the integument, which allowed us to not only corroborate our transcriptome data, but also to propose this gene as a possible a gene involving integument development in gymnosperms and a, to show that it's a specific to the integument. So there are many things that we don't know. We don't know which genes are involved in what makes an integument an integument in gymnosperms. So now we're opening these new avenues and the transcriptome data provides the framework now to start looking at genes that uh, may be specifically involved in the development of different tissues. Wow. Yep. <laughs> wow. I'm like getting sweaty palms thinking of like all of the possibilities here and where you could go. But I mean, here you are at the start of your career. I mean, really setting out with some amazing findings, but then a lot of really new questions that are developing out of this. But it sounds like, and again, novice here talking and asking questions, but it sounds like when it comes to seed development, especially in the context of this integument, these shared structures that are found, you know, you can compare them across gymnosperms and angiosperms that kind of all bets are off. It, it just seems like every lineage is kind of doing its own thing and has maybe not de novo evolved an integument, but in terms of how it does, whew, I mean, that's, that's both exciting and intimidating, I'm guessing. <laughs> it is. It is. They're doing it all in a different way. Yes. <laughs> And I guess, you know, again, going back to the philosophical side of things, like as someone that's studying the evolution of these structures, I mean, what does this tell you? I mean, what are some of the takeaways in terms of like your understanding of this process for the species you studied? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked because with the expression data, we saw, I don't know if you remember that I mentioned that all of these genes are expressed in the megasporomorph cell, <laughs> in the megagametophyte. They're all, we didn't find, any, find them in the integument, but we found them, all of them in this structure. <laughs> so if you think about it and you go back to the hypothesis that we have, for the evolution of the seed and the evolution of the integument, the fact that we saw it in this megasporangia, in this megasporomolar cell and the megasporangia of uh, gymnosperms, it suggests and provides a little bit more evidence supporting the synangial hypothesis for the origin of the integument, where we had this sterilization and fusion of sporangia around a single fertile synangium. Oh. Uh, so, or the telomerogen hypothesis. Now you know that we can merge these two together, but. It's, it, it provides evidence suggesting that the integument genetic network first was co-opted from a sporangia developmental network, and the integuments may be the result of a sterilization of, of sporangia. So it's a little bit more evidence uh, towards wow. uh, these hypotheses. Yes. Yeah. That's Which was so cool. exciting. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean... So at some point... Uh, Someone asked if, the, if these were negative results because I wasn't finding the genes in the integument. So it was like, oh, so these are negative results. First, no, because anything is new here. 
like anything you say about these genes, uh, it's going to be new. Anything you you discover about the expression of these genes in gymnosperms is going to be new. And second, I never thought of it as a negative result because I was so amazed by the expression in the sporangia <laughs> that this was supporting the synangial hypothesis that I really, I that's a big conclusion and a good support. Now we're providing molecular evidence supporting this hypothesis, which was based only on morphological and fossil data. So now we're also providing this other layer towards that hypothesis. I'm I'm just going to applaud right now. I mean, I loved everything you just said there. But yeah, this idea of like negative positive results, like that's so old school. Like don't put value judgments on my results. They're results and they're going to tell us something. <laughs> it's whether it confirms or denies my hypothesis, whatever. But yeah, amazing results nonetheless, because it sounds like through this, I mean, not only are you corroborating stuff that's fossil evidence, morphological evidence, I mean, that to me is the most exciting because it's not just the DNA, it's not just the transcriptome, it's a lot of things that are lining up, which in and of itself, amazing. But it also is saying that, you know, here is a suite of genes that were present and then brought together and then each lineage is kind of doing its own thing with them, but the end result is a seed with, with an integument. I mean, that to me is like the most amazing thing ever. It's just so mind-blowing to have all of that come together. And even though you're seeing vastly different things going on in vastly different lineages, that there is some overlap there and a story can be told with this. Yes, yes. And it's an amazing story from yeah. my point of view. So. <laughs> I mean, when you think of the impact of plants on life on this planet, I think it's one of the most amazing stories because without the seed, I mean, our planet would look vast. I don't know if you and I would be here talking right now. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Yep. <laughs> from the morning coffee to the cotton in our clothes and for the plants itself, like it's not only... What I want to say here is not the seed wasn't like only very important for the plant because it allowed the plant to survive and thrive in very difficult and harsh environments and survive for long periods of time. But also there is this intrinsic interaction between the seed and every living creature, including humans. And it's such an important structure. It's, it's yeah, it's part of our lives and it makes everything <laughs> the world as we know and it's it's because of seeds yeah yeah wow and you know as someone that's early career getting your phd i mean all of this do you have moments where you just sit down and go like oh my god what have i what have i stumbled into here i mean obviously again you have an entire career ahead of you of amazing questions to ask and try to answer but there has to be a moment in all of this where you know not a lot of people get to have those in, in terms of satisfaction and enjoyment and just mind blow of what they get to get up and do every day Yes, yes, that's that's right. I, I love it. And I love what I do. And it's always exciting that we're going to find something new. And I think every anyone in science has these moments. And I really think we should uh, appreciate them more. There's so many difficulties around scientists and science that we we should really take our time to appreciate those good moments, those good results, a good day in the lab. <laughs> it's something that we really need to appreciate more. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Especially in the context that, you know, you're finally at the end of your PhD, these manuscripts are getting written up. I mean, think of just the hardships. There's got to have been some rough times there. Uh, you know, I don't know a single person that got through unscathed. So, yeah, that makes all of that struggle so much more worth it. But again, bringing it all together, you've you've advanced our understanding of very important things yes yes when, and yeah I don't know my advisor and I would love doing this and it was a really nice project and I think at least I didn't know how it was going to turn out because we started with you know like we started from zero <laughs> knowing nothing about gymnosperms and uh, yeah we didn't know where we were going with this like we knew where we were going but we didn't know what the results were going to be and the results at each step are going to shape the the future methodologies and the future questions that you ask so uh, it was really difficult to put together or like make a, a comprehensive 
view of where we were going at the beginning of this of this project but it turned out to be a, a really nice project and with the data set that we generated here with the transcriptome analysis this project and these questions can go on for a really long time whether it's me or someone else working on this you can look at this from a very different perspective and always get a, a good result and a good question. So I focus on transcription factors because these are molecules that we know are involved in developmental processes that bind to other DNA molecules. So someone else can start looking at this data set from a different perspective, from hormones, what are hormones doing in ovule development, or from many other questions. So we're setting up the framework a little bit for future studies, which is also something that I think is very important. We're not just like closing and answering a question and, and leaving it like that. We're also opening new avenues and new uh, ways where we could go and, and research on, on gymnosperms. Oh my gosh, yeah. And I mean, just to think of the amount of research careers you've more or less set the stage for uh, just with this. I mean, like you said, the amount of directions you can go with this are countless almost. I mean, there's so much to be asked and so many gymnosperm lineages to follow. I mean, like what are cycads doing? You know, that kind of thing. But, you know, you particularly now that you've got this data and you've, you've what, what kind of questions are you excited to answer in the coming future or you hope to at least? If, oh my god. Yeah, if that's even answerable, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> uh, I oh, we can go we can go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> what excites you so, the most, I guess? <laughs> now I'm thinking a lot about we know from Arabidopsis again, that uh, there is a crosstalk between the integument and the megamidophyte so that the seed develops uh, properly. So we, we need integuments for the megamidophyte to, to develop properly, okay? So there, is, there are genes that are involved in that crosstalk between the megamidophyte and the integument. So now another question could be looked from the megamidophyte perspective in this uh, structure. So we sequence the transcriptome for the different structures. So now we have the data. Now we can start analyzing, uh, okay, so it's the integument. How is the integument communicated or communicated with the megamidophyte? Uh, how is the megamidophyte also? Because there are different differences in the megamidophyte of angiosperms and gymnosperms. So what are the genes involved in megamidophyte development in gymnosperms? As I mentioned before, hormones. What are hormones doing in a, or which hormones are involved in integument and seed development in general in, in these structures? Or we could go also to another different lineage. We could look at cycads, excite me a lot. They're a little difficult to work with in molecular, uh, from a molecular perspective, but cycads are amazing. And they're, the ovule is relatively similar to the one in ginkgo. So it would be really nice to have as something more similar because <laughs> now here we have like all these different morphologies, Fedras and Nidum and Ginkgo. So it would be nice to have something more similar mm. to one of them. So Cycads is a good one for, for a comparison with Ginkgo. <laughs> awesome. And I mean, yeah, that just goes to show you, like, I'm sure people listening that are even remotely familiar with this sort of work, all these questions are different. <laughs> it's amazing to think of where you could go. But with that in mind, if people want to keep up to date, learn more about what's coming out of your publications and where you want to go with this, where do you recommend they go to find out more about you and your work and, and the work of you know the labs you've been in? Well, you can go into my website. is Cecilia Sumajo, my first and last name, .com. Or I am on Twitter, too. So you can you can find me there. Perfect. And I'll put up links to those to save everyone the trouble. But Dr. Zamaho, thank you so much for talking to us about this incredible work. I mean, I got goosebumps so many times about this conversation because it's just like you said, it's a window back in time, but answering some extremely important and fundamental questions about so, arguably some of the most important structures on this planet. So thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for talking to us about it. No, thank you. And I really appreciate the invitation. Oh, thank of you. course. And Keep in touch because I'm sure there is many more exciting discoveries just over the horizon for you and you are welcome back on to talk about them at any point. So thank you again. 
Thanks. All right. Cheers. All right. How awesome was that? I thank Dr. Zamaho for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us, and I hope you learned a lot about the process of fruit development. And I have to say, my head is off to anyone that can take complex molecular techniques like that and make them understandable to a wider audience. I can't overemphasize how amazing her science communication skills truly are. Of course, all of the relevant links for this episode, as well as all previous episodes, can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, so go follow up there if you're interested in learning more. Before I let you go for today, please consider picking up a copy of my book, In Defense of Plants, An Exploration into the Wonder of Plants. I really appreciate everyone that's picked up a copy thus far, but I think there's something in there for everyone that's interested in nature in a broad sense. It's not just for botanical nuts like you and I. Once again, In Defense of Plants, An Exploration into the Wonder of Plants, you can find it wherever books are sold, or just head on over to the website and find the links embedded there. Also, please, please, please consider supporting this podcast over at patreon.com slash plants. This whole podcast would not be possible without the support of all of the wonderful patrons that contribute each and every month. Speaking of which, I have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Alvin, Christopher, and Shelby. All of them went over to Patreon and signed up at the producer credit level, so they are getting access to all of the wonderful kickbacks we have over at Patreon, including access to multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month. So not only are they enabling this podcast to come to you each and every week for free, they're getting a lot in return in the process, and I can't thank them as well as all of my patrons enough. Once again, that's patreon.com slash plants. You can also pick up stickers over at indefensiveplants.com slash shop or a ton of customizable merch over at teespring.com slash stores slash indefensiveplants. Of course, those links are in the show notes for every episode as well, so I can save you the time of having to remember that or pull over your car and write them down as you're listening. But that is it for me this week. Once again, thank you for listening. Please make sure you're subscribed and that you're telling your friends about this podcast because we need more people getting interested in plants and plant conservation. But until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.